Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Filmmaking brothers Kia and Tristan Roach-Turner are back with a sequel to 2015's cult smash hit, Wormwood Road of the Dead. Out this week on demand and on digital, Wormwood Apocalypse follows a soldier in a zombie-infested wasteland who has dedicated his life to tracking and capturing survivors for the Surgeon General in hopes of finding a cure. Fangoria's Phil Noble says Wormwood Apocalypse makes zombie movies fun again. The Guardian calls it perversely colorful, visually energetic, and proudly splatterific. From XYZ Films releasing, Wormwood Apocalypse is now available everywhere you buy movies. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the vast and glorious San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Asking your questions, as usual, is Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how are you? I am great, Mick, and I am excited to be here with you to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Stephen King's The Shining. You're (laughs) The Shining. As opposed to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. That's right. <laughs> no, it's nice to have a special show that's all devoted to that. Uh, our our show, our previous show with uh, with Cynthia and with Stephen Weber and with Bill Corso was so much fun, such a great reunion. And now it's time for the audience to ask their questions. Yes, now, now, Mick, it is time for you to take your medicine. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> To quote well, Jack Torrance. Yeah, I'm girding uh, my loins. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> no, so so I'm, I'm really excited to, to do this too. And we got great questions from the fans. I'm going to uh, do this a little differently than we usually do. Um, I've kind of divided it up so we can we can kind of revisit this chronologically. And, and I'll, I'll drop in questions from the fans as we go. Um, but good. I wanted to start. I wanted to start at, at where where you left off with King, which was. A, a huge success in the stand. Um, right. One of the the biggest miniseries ratings wise, I think, to that point, right? Yeah, uh, and and certainly nothing after that reached that high because network television and television in general became so fractured. There became all right. these other cable channels and streaming channels, all of that. Yeah. So we got over fifty million people a night on the stand each of those four nights. So, which, which to give people uh, yeah. some comparisons, like the Oscars this year only reached 16 million people. Right. So like more we're, than we're three, talking almost, three times almost five. Many. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's incredible. Um, even, even the shining uh, miniseries did is from what I researched was like 19 or 20 million. Oh, uh, easily, uh, uh, easily more than that. And I'm sure that this is off of Wikipedia. Yeah. So, you know, right. right. <laughs> but no, they were both uh, the stand was a, a devastating success. The shining was also hugely successful, but not on the level that the stand was. So, so tell me what's life like after the stand comes out. I mean, there was, there's three years in between the two miniseries, obviously making yeah. is, is a, a, a year, year and a half at least, but, uh, were people coming out to you with lots of different project ideas? What was what was life for Mick Garris right after the stand hits? Well, it was really strange because it was such a huge success. 
I expected that I'd be working a lot. Um, I didn't direct for three years until the, the Shining. Now, that's not to say that there was no development going on at right. that time. And the biggest one was Rose Red, which at that time was going to be a $40 million feature film produced by Steven Spielberg, written by Stephen King and directed by me. Yeah. Well, that didn't happen because King had written his screenplay. Stephen had given some notes. King did a rewrite that didn't address the notes fully enough for Stephen. So they agreed to disagree and part ways on the project. And you got caught in the middle between, between dads. <laughs> right. The way I like to put it is there's an 800 pound gorilla on either side. And I was the 50 pound chimp in the middle. Uh, um, so during that time, I also wrote to direct a four hour miniseries version of the talisman by King and Peter Straub. So one of my favorite screenplays I wrote, but at the time, ABC with whom we'd made the deal to do the talisman had a, disastrous ratings period. They mm. were in the cellar. They were even lower rated than at the time, the new network of Fox. Wow. So they couldn't afford it. And that's just the above the line. There was Steven Spielberg, Kathy Kennedy, Frank Marshall, uh, oh Stephen King, Peter Straub. And at the bottom of that list of above the line, me, <laughs> that made it just the the talent fees would be too much for them to go forward with a show that would have been very expensive to make. Yeah. Although the script was well received, they never were able to make it, never got off the ground. So there was a lot of development going on. Right. I was not oiling my directing muscles at the time. Right. Yeah. So so but so when did King know or start working on the Shining. Like, did, was there any inklings when you were doing the stand that he's like, boy, I'd love to revisit this? Or was this something that came later? No, it was reverse. Uh, what happened was when the, the stand became such a huge success, they went to King and said, what do you want to do next? And King thought about it and said, you know, I've never really been happy with the adaptation of The Shining, despite its huge success and how it, iconic it became. Mm -hmm. uh, I would really love the opportunity for it to be told the way it was told in the book. And so ABC was thrilled with that and they made the deal with him to do The Shining next. I don't know how long that was in development before King came to me and said, look, Here's the script to The Shining. I'd love for you to do it. If Brian De Palma turns it down, would you do it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've never heard that before. That's really no, I haven't really talked about that much before. But Brian De Palma was certainly not going to do an ABC miniseries at that time. Right. Um, right. And I don't know if he ever got an answer from Brian De Palma or not. But if he did, it was no. <laughs> so that allowed it, you know, King and I, had such a great time doing the stand. We yeah. not only became good friends, but we became great collaborators. Right. It was right. So much. Well, obviously, I mean, you were doing two other projects with him at the time. So, it, and, and the stand was such a success. Naturally, it made sense to come to you, I think. Well, uh, it, it worked out great. And we were able to do this together, but there was a three year gap in between. So, speaking of 
kind of King famously not liking, you know, the Kubrick's The Shining. Do you think that being able to go back in and have an ending where he redeems Jack on screen and shows him beating the bottle and saving his family from the ghost, was that, was that the big driving factor for him at this point in his life, do you think? Well, I think there's much more to it than that. I think that was a big part of it. But, and we've talked about this before, and we talked about it with Weber and, and Corso, is Kubrick's film is very cold and mm-hmm. clinical and detached. Mm-hmm. And King's work is very internal and warm. And uh, it was such a personal book to him. King, as we talked about before, was a wet alcoholic at the time that he wrote the book. Right. And that book is all about the guilt being felt for having these violent feelings towards a child. Yeah. You know, he, he breaks the kid's arm. It's all about fighting the demons within him that are trying to control him in a metaphorical state, but also in a literal way in terms of the alcoholism. And that struggle really never became a part of what the Kubrick movie was all about. Mm-hmm. And the book is so personal to him. I would imagine he never said this, but I would imagine that he was hurt by how Kubrick ignored those elements that were so personal and important to him in an emotional sense. Yeah. So the opportunity to tell one of his most successful stories the way it was intended mm-hmm. was, was the opportunity to do it and at such a length that he could address the issues he really wanted to address. Yeah. Four and a half is, hours. Of is, is that why you think he chose the miniseries format? Was it because was it, was it, was it economic or do you think it really was a storytelling choice? Well, I think it's definitely a storytelling choice. There's a reason it's four and a half hours instead right. of six hours like the stand, but uh, King, that was the time when miniseries were at their pinnacle And they referred to them, King loved the term a novel for television, because you could tell a whole story from a novel rather than its greatest hits. So uh, the approach to a novel for television thrilled him, which is why he was so excited to finally do the stand on film after 15 years at least trying to make a feature film or two feature films that never got off the ground because it was too complicated. So this was an opportunity to tell the story in full, as well as hit all those emotional points that were the intent and the crux of the book. So tell us a little bit about when King first approached you to direct. How did, how did, how did that phone call go? How, did, how was that digested by you? I, I mean, um, was there any initial hesitation on your part to, to tackle this kind of material? It was met with great naivete. Uh, okay. I never stopped to think that the first film was so iconic that there would be a lot of resistance to this. Mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, how great to be able to, A, work with King again, mm-hmm. B, work on a project that one of my favorite books, perhaps my favorite horror book of all time. Yeah and see to translate that book to the screen with respect to the right. book right. And, and the story. So I never once thought about the greatness of Stanley Kubrick, the greatness of Jack Nicholson, all of that. You know, and I've said numerous times that the Kubrick film is a great Kubrick film, but it does not do justice to the King book. 
right. they're, they're separate entities. Mm-hmm. They became very divided. So my thought process was just, let's make the best adaptation of this fantastic cinematic book yeah. as possible. We were able to translate the stand to the screen with great success. So let's see what we can do here. Yeah. It wasn't until yeah. the casting process where every actor we went to to play Jack Torrance turned it down. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, when, when the project was announced, was there anyone who was like, was there any skepticism that you encountered outside of just casting? Was Were there other filmmakers that you were talking to who were like, oh my gosh, like, what a challenge. Like, what, what was kind of the sense going in? Or was it really when a casting hit that it was like, oh, this is going to maybe be more, more challenging than maybe initially thought? It was entirely the casting process. That's when it came home. Actually, even before that, I called Gary Sinise mm. and I said, you know, we're going to be doing The Shining. Would you be interested in taking on the Jack Torrance role? Right. He said, you know, Mick, I'd be kind of hesitant about stepping into Nicholson's shoes. Yeah. Because the realization that the first line of every review was going to be so-and-so is no Jack Nicholson, but... <laughs> so that turned out to not be the case but everyone feared that yeah do you think that some of that naivete that 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 uh that you maybe had do you think some of that was fueled by the success of psycho four and following in hitchcock's shoes already do you think there was any anything any confidence there that was kind of driving you well psycho four was not Uh, a high profile success. It was made for Showtime. Showtime was way down the ladder at that time from HBO. Yeah. So Showtime was perfect because if people liked it when they saw it, they could go, I saw this great movie on Showtime, a Psycho 4. If they didn't like it, no one would notice. Right. Okay. Fair enough. and, And critically, it had the most divergent reviews I've ever had. Most of them, not so good, but the good ones were really good. Oh, I think time's been very kind uh, to that. As it well. definitely has. It, it's yeah. kind of been the case with a lot of my stuff that um, was not necessarily successful when it came out, but not necessarily successful now, but has a long life and become revived a lot in ways that uh, others are not. So, so really, really, truly, it was, it was, it was from the motivation of let's tell King's story. You know, that's, that's kind of what gave you the confidence to push through any initial skepticism. And Um, it was the best script I'd ever read. I was, I was, I was getting to that. I was, I was going to say, I mean, what was it like uh, to read the script because obviously the book you've said on many occasions is one of your, your favorite books of all time. Yeah. Um, how was it reading the script compared to the book? Like did, did it evoke the same feelings for you? Uh, t- tell me, tell me about that. It completely did, you know, and obviously Stephen King writing the screenplay and Stephen King writing the novel the, coming from the same spring of knowledge um, <laughs> made for a really terrific read. And King knows the difference between writing a script and writing a book, but all of the emotion and all of the beats and all of the humanity that's in the book was expressed in the screenplay and conveyed in a way that the actors clearly would understand it when they read that script. Uh, The descriptive stuff was tightened, but it was still there. And right. the heart 
the heart was there. The heart, the soul, and all of the blood pumping through its veins was in the screenplay. And reading that script, the, the stand was an amazing script. Right. But The Shining really was the best script I had ever read and certainly the best script offered to me ever at yeah. that time. Or yeah. since. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. I, was there anything when you read it uh, that you went like, wow, this is going to be very intimidating to put on screen. Was there, was there anything, was there any standout moments that you were like, this, this is going to be a challenge here? Well, being stranded by snow was going to be a challenge. Um, at that time, it seemed like everything I was directing was shot in winter in some winter place. <laughs> and I'm a native Angelino and uh, not used to snow and being snowbound and all that. Yeah. So there were definitely challenges in creating that, which I assume we're going to get into later. But yes, we are. But wow. um, but that was the biggest challenge. But I'll tell you, I had the most comfortable budget of my career on this miniseries. We did not move around much. Mm -hmm. A huge proportion of what we shot was on sound stages in Denver and on location at the Stanley Hotel. Yeah, and we had the resources to do it right. We had the time all in one place with a tiny cast to be able to concentrate entirely on storytelling and performance and, and the tools of its construction. Yeah. So yeah. it was the least intimidating thing other than the Kubrick element that right. I have ever made because I'd never really, to this day, I've not had resources that I felt were capable of telling the story the way I wanted to tell it as they were on The Shining. The initial script that you read from King, uh, did much change between that and, and production and, what we've, and the final product? Or do you feel like because of those resources and supports, uh, what you read initially kind of made it through to the finish line. We shot the script. Amazing. You know, it, it was in such great shape. And you know the story so well. The mm -hmm. book is so clearly delineated. And yet Steve knows the difference between writing prose and writing screen uh, screenplays. And so it was very well delineated. I don't know if once I came on board, if there were any rewrites at all, I don't remember. There may have been tweaks here and there. Right. And he was around so much during the production that um, he was easily accessible to talk to about these things. I, I, I was going to ask about that shortly. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into the production in a minute. One, one I guess, like kind of final development question. Um, there, there's lots of rumors that, and, and lots of uh, our fans ask this question as well. Um, that Kubrick uh, made some, some in the deal making to, to get this project off the ground, Kubrick had some concessions like King had to be the writer on the projects. And uh, there's all sorts of rumors abound. But what was, was there, were there any constraints that Kubrick put on the project from a deal making there, perspective? There were two that I know of. Yeah. And the one you just mentioned is bullshit. <laughs> the two that I know of, one, Stanley Kubrick was paid $1.5 million. Wow. And two, King, who was, it was well known, and he was very vocal about his disdain for the original movie, 
could not speak publicly about his opinion of the feature film. Those were the two elements that I know of that were in the agreement with Kubrick. Interesting. Um, okay, well, let's let's talk some pre-production then. Um, so when did you know that you were going to be shooting at the Stanley? We were scouting locations with uh, a Warner Brothers executive and our producer, Mark Carliner. And we were going to shoot in Canada. It was mm. Warner Brothers wanted it to shoot in Canada. They wanted us to go up to Oregon to look at the location that Kubrick had used. They wanted us to go, we were gonna go to Edmonton or something as well, or to Banff. I think we were gonna go up to Banff. Oh, there's some beautiful stuff up in Banff, but wait, they really, they wanted you to look at the same hotel that Kubrick used? They mentioned it. I don't think that was scheduled on the trip. I think we were gonna right. go directly to Banff. And I said- That, well, that would have been wild. It uh, would have been- <laughs> really weird and i don't think it would have gone. I, I think i feel like it would have been creatively debilitating to be honest it would have although all of the sets for the kubrick shining were built in england and shot on the stage right. only the exterior was was used got uh, it got it got it but uh we were scheduled we were scheduled to fly up to vanth and take a look at this location and i said look we're going on a trip can we please stop at the Stanley Hotel and look at that? Yeah. This is the place where the book was born. This is where it takes place. Why would we not stop here and look at it at least? Because, yeah. you know, it was obviously cheaper to shoot a film in Canada than in the US, particularly in LA. So the executive from Warner Brothers, who was a really good guy, and I must say Warner Brothers treated us great. They, they gave us the resources to do it right. They were supportive at every step of the way, which you can't say about every uh, production company or studio or network. No, you can't. But this was great. <laughs> and I said, so we please, let's stop in Colorado and take a look. So we went to Estes Park. Mark Carliner, the Warner Brothers executive, and I walked through the place we're looking at the place and I just stopped and turned and looked at them and said, do we really need to go anywhere further? This is perfect. Why would we not want to be here? Yeah. Yeah. And the Warner brothers executive was saying, well, you know, um, let me make a call. <laughs> so he made a call to the powers that be at Warner's television. Yeah. And we did not go to Banff. We ended <laughs> our location scout there and the rest is uh, history. Yeah. Cinematic history, telematic yeah. history. <laughs> how much, how much time before shooting did you get to spend in the hotel? Like, did, did you, did you take any time to just kind of walk it and get to know it outside of those initial scouts? Um, well, the initial scout uh, was the first time we saw it, and I chose to stay in room 217. Right, uh, right. And, and walked it. But once we were in pre-production, there, there was plenty of, all of the pre-production time was spent in Estes Park uh, and at the hotel. And during production, most of the cast and crew stayed in the hotel or very nearby. Um, so yeah, there was plenty of time to do all that prep work in there. 
So we talked a little bit about casting before and, and some of the challenges of it, but um, Bob Z asked, uh, he's a big Rebecca De Mornay fan and uh. wanted to know about casting her in the movie. And I read in my research that Stephen King was the one who actually suggested her. Is that true? He actually did. When we were doing the press junket, the Television Critics Association junket in Pasadena for the stand, Rebecca was there promoting a TV movie that she had done. And King met her and said, listen, I've got something in mind for you. Mm. So this was a seed in his mind three years before we made wow. the movie. Wow. So he told me later that, well, he told me at that time, she would be great as Wendy in The Shining, a strong Wendy who's not a dish towel. Yeah, yeah. You know, who was a more modern representative of uh, what Wendy should be from the book in a contemporary way, a much stronger, mm -hmm. forceful, willful woman. So she was cast before we ever started prep, before we started casting. It was his idea. It was a great idea. And she was terrific in the role. Yeah. Um, I read also somewhere that in terms of, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this on, on the Stephen Weber, uh, Bill Corso episode that, you know, King almost shut production down because you were having so much trouble finding Jack Torrance. Did Rebecca suggest Stephen Weber? Is that is that true? No, no. no. Lynn Pressel, uh, our casting director, who is a great casting director, and she's done most of my Stephen King projects. She suggested him now. And I think we talked about it on the show with Weber, but um, I had never seen Wings. Right. And it's probably a good thing but here right. we are three days before production is to begin and weber comes in and he read with rebecca right and that reading was sensational now had i seen wings and known him as the goofy brother character in a sitcom sure. i don't know that i would have been able to i would have been smart enough and perceptive enough to see stephen weber as Jack Torrance. Right. So I was so lucky. I'd seen him in movies before, but I had not seen Wings. And I saw him fresh. Mm -hmm. I saw him read with Rebecca. Here's a, the star of a hit TV series reading for a part. That's not yeah. very common, but he wanted that part. And it was a great opportunity for him. And he got the reviews of his life doing yeah. Jack Torrance with yeah. such depth and, and tenacity. So that was how that happened uh, it's it's a uh, it's pretty amazing how casting can work itself out in those in those yeah. uh, amazing i mean even when you know when i did the opera it came down to the wire too and we found our cast literally in the days leading to to shooting and it's 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 amazing how it can happen that way sometimes uh, yeah yeah and, and to the betterment of the the movie absolutely know? because if weber hadn't been fantastic we would not have made The Shining. It was three yeah. days before production began. And the first couple of days, he had to finish work on Wings. Oh my so gosh. <laughs> we had to shoot a lot of second unit stuff. We had to kind of make up what we're doing the first couple of days. And so a lot of those shots oh, wow. of the, the haunted hotel, the empty hotel, the exteriors, things like that, we, we made two days of work out of that. Oh my gosh, it's so great. And it's so funny that actually answers somebody else's question, which was... Uh... 
how involved were you in the shots of the hotel? Uh, so they're very, so yeah, so that's, 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 that's incredible. That's, that's so funny. Um, yeah, I was the second unit director as well for most in the most. Right. Part. Right. Because there was no first unit yet. Right. So, <laughs> uh, all right, well, just a couple, uh, there's, there was a lot of questions about, you know, some of the other roles too. So I figured maybe just, so just rapid fire, let's go through, uh, tell me about casting Melvin Van Peebles. Well, Melvin Van Peebles was better known as a filmmaker than as an actor, although he cast himself in his own movies. He's legendary. His, his movie, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, was a hugely influential early African-American movie that he wrote, directed, and starred in. Once again, Lynn Kressel to the rescue. She came up with that really off-the-wall idea, and Melvin was great. Now, uh, I will say he's passed away and is greatly missed. Uh, but we had to use a lot of cue cards with Melvin. Oh, yeah. So that was a little bit of a source of frustration, but worth it because he's such a unique screen presence. And that's what editing's for. <laughs> yeah, honestly, in revisiting it, you, you'd never know. Um, yeah. I, I, I would never have guessed that. Uh, and he's, yeah. he's, so, he's so great and he's so entertaining. And he's so good with Dan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Elliot Gould. Again, Lynn Kressel. Uh, what a tremendous opportunity for me. You know, he was the biggest actor in the 70s. He was the biggest movie star in the 70s. And getting an opportunity to sit down at lunch with him, even though he only worked a couple of days, to be able to sit down at lunch with Elliot Gould and talk to him about his work with Robert Altman and, and all these other great 70s and 80s movies that he appeared in. Yeah. It was great. And to play that character of Ullman with the yeah. of his ass. Such, <laughs> such disdain. Uh, so much. And yeah. it was so great to see him working like that and feeling like, God, he really knows how to play this guy. <laughs> Uh, Pat Hingle. Again, a great character actor who's been around since he was on Broadway in the 50s. Yeah. You know, just a, an iconic actor, character actor's character actor. But I'll tell you, the first, he came out twice, once during the winter and once during the spring. Right, sure. So uh, it was at the opposite ends of our production schedule. And when he first came out, you know, he did a great job, but you could tell it was just a job. He said, yeah, yeah. And here's this young guy directing that he didn't know or anything. But the second time he came out, he had watched The Stand and his attitude completely changed. He was so impressed by it that he was eager and happy and, you know, asking me questions and inviting me to his home in North Carolina and stuff. Oh. What, what, what were the, what were, do you remember which scene was which, the, which was shot first and which was shot later? Um, boy, it's hard to remember because they were interiors almost entirely. Yeah. It must have been the, the exteriors were, were first because okay. it wasn't snowed in when he was welcoming, welcoming them to the hotel and showing them around. Got it. So that had to be first. And he was great, but he was a professional, but kind of detached and it's just another job. But when he came back, he felt like he was a part of something special. That's very cool. That's very cool. Uh, getting into production, um, while directing, did you find yourself 
going back to the book for clues and insights or because King was there, did you go to the man himself? I had read the book three times already. I knew it pretty well. And the script was so well laid out and so well translated to cinematic terms. And yes, having Stephen King around for a good two thirds of the shoot, although there wasn't really much need to, to go to the source. He was there for support and for information. And he was writing the Green Mile at the time uh, and having a wonderful time doing it every time he'd he'd type up and print out a bunch of pages he'd hand me uh, and I'd read them and, and get to read everything before everybody else. That's so cool. It was amazing. <laughs> um, so during production, he was basically a cheerleader. Uh, and there, if we needed him, and sometimes we did, but everybody was so respectful of the work and so excited to be doing this with him that, um, the need to go back to the book was was really there wasn't one you know the, everything was there at our fingertips that's great uh so john asks how long was the shoot and did the crew stay at the stanley the whole time uh the shoot was 72 days and that's for three two-hour movies which is actually three 90-minute movies right uh, when we were shooting at the stanley all of the rooms were taken by crew members. Wow. That wasn't enough for everybody. And the cast were in these, uh, Weber talked about the chalets uh, when, uh, when we did that show. But right. they, it's a resort town, Estes Park, Colorado. It's the gateway to the Colorado Rockies. And so there were nice places for people to stay. There were motels right on the outskirts of town. So the crew kind of filled all of those uh, uh, available uh, locations because the town kind of shuts down in the winter because it really, although that area is built in what they call a snow shadow, meaning it doesn't snow there uh, mm. as it does in all the other parts of the Rockies. So that's why they built the hotel there, but it's also why it was such a problem trying to create the snow there. Yeah. I have, I have some questions about that that we'll get to. Uh, okay. So, so we've got probably the most popular question we got uh, for this, this special ask Mick anything was, uh haunted goings ons at the family <laughs> um did the did the crew i know you didn't experience anything per se but did you hear any stories about the crew experiencing things and uh, again wikipedia with another interesting fact claimed that cynthia your wife experienced something while she was there not, uh not that i remember um but no there were crew members who did don jeffrey nelson who was our acting coach for Cortland mead um, said that she experienced feeling somebody, maybe it was Cynthia, no, Dawn, who felt somebody sit down on the edge of the bed. Oh, wow. There was nobody else there. There were sounds. Uh, there were guest books from over the years since it was built in 1909, where you'd see so-and-so reported a woman in white at the end of the hallway outside of room whatever. Um uh, lots of things recorded in, in the guest books that uh, were very creepy. There were strange sounds. There were experiences like what Dawn had. Um, the only thing that I really experienced was during production, we were shooting in the lobby of the hotel. 
and all of the crew was there working. And we kept hearing this bang, bang, bang from the room directly overhead. And I'd have to cut and then we'd start again and it would go bang, 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 bang. Huh. And I'd cut and clear it. And then we'd action and bang, 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 bang. So we stopped. We had sent somebody upstairs to check the room, that room, which was our first assistant director's room. And of course the first assistant director was on the set, but um, there was nobody in the room, nobody around because everyone was working. And finally it stopped, but that was, that was the most mysterious thing that happened directly to me. But a lot of other people did report things that made them uneasy. And Weber himself was, uh, was kind of freaked out in that room. The uh, how much would you say was shot on sound stages versus in the hotel? And, and are there any like mis- like parts of the hotel that were shot on sound stages that you'd be surprised to hear were a sound stage? Well, we obviously had to shoot some of the corridors on the sound stage because we were pounding holes in walls and and just the freedom to go up and down different turn corners and things like that. Um, so those most overt ones were done on the soundstage, but we shot the corridors and the stairwells and uh, rooms and things a lot. But the inside of room 217 was on a soundstage. All of the, uh, the Torrance family's apartment was on a soundstage because there isn't anything that goes to the manager of the hotel. They don't live on location. They live at home and come to work. But this, because he's the caretaker, he's got to have an apartment to live there. We built that on a soundstage. But a huge proportion of the movie was shot at the hotel. Certainly half, maybe more. So several people have asked if there were any challenges from the network in terms of adapting The Shining for television, what you could or couldn't show. Um, Or did the stand buy you some goodwill on that front? Well, the stand definitely bought us goodwill. Uh, we were given rules when we made the stand and we broke them and it became a huge success. In the case of The Shining, Warner Brothers was our production company this time rather than an independent company like Laurel Entertainment on the stand. Right. So Warner Brothers was in full support. We knew we were making it for network television, but we also knew we were making a Stephen King project. So that when you have Stephen King's name in the title, you know what to expect. And that definitely bought us some flexibility. But I don't remember there being anything in the script that uh, that they objected to. That's good, because I remember uh, the, the, the eyes in the stand being a, a particular challenge. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and yet we did it anyway. <laughs> we did it anyway. Yeah. Uh, Tony wants to know. What do you think made Steven Weber's performance stand out from Jack Nicholson's? Well, for one thing, um, it more closely followed who Jack Torrance is in the book, which is a reflection of its author, who is deeply personally involved in the story and the emotional connection to it, the warmth that Steven Weber brings to it the fact that he had been through issues that his father had had that were similar to Jack Torrance's issues and issues that he himself had experienced. The fact that, you know, uh, 
I, I've talked about this before when David Cronenberg and I were talking about the Kubrick Shining right after mm. it came out. Kubrick said, or Cronenberg said, the problem with that Jack Torrance for him was that they cast the ending, that right. Jack Torrance is mad from the get-go. There is a steady decline in the mental health of Stephen Weber's Jack Torrance, Stephen King's Jack Torrance. And Stephen Weber really connected to that in a very, very humble and human and personal way. Um, and it's something that we talked about a lot before we started and throughout, uh, throughout he, he had it in mind at all times. He, he really, even though as, as it's obvious, Weber is a very funny guy and a really great guy. And after you do an incredibly strong emotional take, he can make light of it and joke with the crew and the like. But he's also a very deep and, and emotional and, and human guy, somebody who uh, I really, really admire creatively and personally. And I think there's just a totally different approach. Nicholson is Nicholson. He's iconic. His Jack right. Lawrence is unforgettable, and it's engraved in the uh, Jellystone Park of, <laughs> of great performances. True. But uh, Weber's performance as Jack, as Jack Torrance just went at it from another direction, the direction that, that was more grounded in the book. You mentioned on Postmortem uh, that you got to shoot mostly in chronological order. Do you, do you think that helped Steven's performance? I'm sure it did. I, it's always beneficial to an actor if they can start at the beginning and work their way to the end. You can't always do that when you're shooting different locations and all, but the ability to shoot mostly in just a couple of locations helped a lot. And uh, in, in a role like Jack Torrance, where you're in every scene of the movie and it's about your mental decline, and the buildup of the boiler inside your heart and your head, it's, it's hugely beneficial to be able to approach that, at least in some semblance of order. Yeah. I mean, it's especially helpful, too, I think, with, uh, with kids. And speaking of, you know, Corlin Mead playing Danny Torrance, that would be a tough role for any actor, let alone a child. Uh, how did you balance the stress of production with guiding a child through such an intense performance? Well, it was a less stressful production than most. Um, and we also had Don Jeffrey Nelson on board as his uh, acting coach. Oh. So, you know, a director is not an acting teacher, although at times, sometimes he is required, he or she is required to be. When you're directing a movie, there's not really the time for that. You can work with an actor, and I did extensively, but I also had Dawn interpreting our approach to Danny Torrance, to young Cortland Mead. And I know his performance is controversial. Some people find him a little abrasive. They don't like the shape of his mouth or whatever. I've heard all of those things. But here's an eight-year-old kid who is required to do lots of dialogue. King writes a lot of dialogue for yeah. his screen characters. And he's eight years old. He turned nine during the course of production. And you can wow. only work a certain length of a certain number of hours because of Screen Actors Guild rules with a child. 
uh, we got an extra hour once he turned nine. So that was a big birthday party on set. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> but Cortland was a really good, really smart, really cooperative kid. And Don did a great job of working with him. And I think he handled it great. Uh, there are varying opinions on, on how it was, but I think the, the translation of King's vision of Danny Torrance to the screen was handled beautifully. And I, I think he's a really terrific actor and it's a great performance. You know, it's, it's also hard to maintain the steam of a performance when you're a child, when everything is broken up into shots and multiple takes and d shooting reverses on the other characters. In oh yeah. And for a child to be able to maintain that level of intensity that, and also his going into trance and rolling his eyes back and stuff like yeah. that, he, he, that's not CG. Those are his eyes rolling back. Right, right. He was really required to do a lot of, of a wide range of emotional things. With and with those trances, uh, I mean, how, how do you guide him through that? Do you work with him to create like what he's going to do there? I mean, how, how did you get to like, the, the blocking of what that was going to look like? Yeah, well, the one I remember in particular is on the swing outside of their, their Boulder home. And uh, yeah, I just, the whole thing is your body is taken over by something you don't understand. And you're not even inhabiting that body anymore. It's just a shell. And so your head goes back, you can't see. And I can roll my eyes back so you only see the whites of my eyes. Sure. And it turned out that Cortwin could as well. So that was something we worked out together and when it would happen and all of that. So tasking an eight-year-old with that is, is quite, quite difficult to do. And he was really up to it in ways that uh, it, it's difficult to imagine being eight and nine years old handling those tasks. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let's talk visuals for a second. Um, how did you and your director of photography, Shelly Johnson, go about creating a look that was different from Kubrick's yet very distinctive in its own right? Well, there's a lot about corridors that make them cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, Kubrick's film, was one of the pioneering uses of the then new Steadicam. Mm -hmm. And Steadicam has since become a tool that uh, makes dollies uh, unnecessary in a lot in of a ways. Way, yeah. Uh, but it's also a fluid tool that makes the camera float. And in a ghost story, that's a really valuable tool. But the imagery I wanted to use, there's a lot of very wide masters and cold lighting in in the kubrick film yeah and i love wide lenses and long lenses so something we used a lot that differentiated from the the way kubrick shot was the use of long lenses so especially in a horror film or where you're trying to generate chills or suspense when your foreground and your background are soft focus and you only see clearly what is um where you are focused on also tends to give you a sense of unease or tension and the movement of the camera and the trading of positions. And we talked about that scene in front of the fireplace with uh, Rebecca and Stephen, uh, where she's lit by the fire. She's very warm. He's lit by moonlight, very cold and the trading yeah. of places and 
just camera movement and and the movement, the blocking of the characters is very specific. And we used color a lot in the making of our Shining. And those soft lenses, you know, it, it's very much a technique that I use in general. But in that one in particular, we wanted the feel of a very grounded ghost story. So ghosts are not something that are outlandish. There's something that are believable that they inhabit you and make you do things that you don't want to do. Right. So the visual sense was, first of all, having a great location. Secondly, having a great director of photography, Shelley Johnson. And thirdly, having uh, the collaboration where everybody had the same vision in mind. And I always create a visual manifesto before I direct anything. And it's a couple of pages of what the color palette is, of what the lenses are, of, of what the movement's going to be, and the tools that we're going to use and need. And so that was a really important part of our planning. So a few kind of specific set piece questions. Uh, Welsh writes, can you go into detail about how you filmed the scene on the roof with the wasp hive? Well, we shot it on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I was, I figured. <laughs> yeah, we had Steve up on, on the roof. Um, there were some wasps. Some oh, wow. Wasps, and it's hard for me to even say wasps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, most of the, the wasps you see with the nest when Steve is handling it are CG. Most of the ones flying around are CG. You use smoke to control wasps. They get very logy, like bees. If you use a smoker, they get very logy. They don't move much. So you can have them there, but they're kind of dizzy and easy right. to work with. They don't take direction well. <laughs> is that but, how you got is that how you got it on his hand? Was was yeah. yeah. It was yeah. smoke, it was on his hand. And so, but it was it was his hand and it was a real wasp. Yeah, but they're not quite as dangerous once they've had a touch of the smoke, which you can say about lots of folks. But, <laughs> but in true. this case, I also used a song for that that I I played while we were shooting, not when we we're doing dialogue, just to to play the feel of it. Tim Finn, uh, a song by Tim Finn, who was in Split Ends and Crowded House, and of course. Crowded House, Don't Dream It's Over was sure. an important part of the stand. So there's a, a Finn brother in both those movies. That's cool. No, it's it's an intense scene. Uh, Daniel asks, can you talk about the topiary animals? They're obviously a part of the novel that weren't featured in Kubrick's version, uh, but they're in the miniseries. What was the thought behind bringing them into this? And what was the process like of bringing them to life? by far the hardest part of this shoot. Really complicated and it, it overlaps with the snow question that I'm sure you'll be getting to. But <laughs> um, we had the topiary animals put into position. Some of them were static, some of them were puppeted so that they could be moved. We didn't really want to do much movement on camera because it's all in Jack's head. Right. What we think it is. And so uh, it's, it was very complicated because of the snow. Some of them drop snow and that's part of the building of tension. Wait, did that move? There's snow that fell off of the head of this line or, yeah, yeah. or footprints, uh, that sort of thing. 
So shooting that jigsaw puzzle of a lion before snow falls off, after it falls off, when it changes positions, yeah, it was the most confusing scene I've ever shot in my life. Oh, wow. And so, you know, Jack is armed with a broom and all of these topiary animals that are in various stages of where they are, what their position is. Are they crouching? Are they on a full rise? Um, are they with snow on them, without snow on them? All of that stuff. Huh unbelievably oh, complicated to shoot and so we had to run steve through all of these different versions and then a sweaty version of him that's at the end of the scene so all of this had to be done bit by bit by bit as a jigsaw puzzle with really specific notes for the editor so it was incredibly complicated and also that day everything was supposed to be covered with snow but there was no snow. Um, we made snow. We did as well as we could. You couldn't blow the snow high enough to reach the tops of the trees. So I had to frame everything uh, below the treetops, try not to show those things, cover the top of the, you know, the, you use cotton wool for snow, you use snowflakes, you, you use an ice maker chipper that oh. you used to make snow all of these ways to make snow and when it was done it was like and it's also the same day we shot danny out playing in the snow the snow 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 song did you have to do both of those scenes with the, the topiaries uh, within with the same Jack day danny, the yeah. same day well it was just one it was just one day yeah. it might have been two but okay. uh, but they were both shot yeah back, back to back, to back. yeah I mean, that makes sense. Uh, I would, I would hope it was two days because that feels like it would be a, a, a lot to do in a single day. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> that's the job. That is but, the job. <laughs> but afterwards, it was like, I guess this will work. But boy, this is really hard. And the snow issue was really terrible. That night, there was a huge snowfall that blanketed everything. <laughs> so the next day, we reshot it. Oh, really? Yeah. Not all of it, but some of it, a huge part of it. Yeah. That worked so much to our benefit. It really is a much better couple of scenes than it would have been. And honestly, that's the advantage of shooting in few locations is you had the flexibility that you could go back and, and redo that. Exactly. Um, because yeah. we were there for weeks at a time uh, we were able to shift the schedule around and make it work. So, okay, well, let, let's talk about let's talk about the snow. I'll jump to the snow question, uh, which comes from a Minnesotan native, my wife, <laughs> <laughs> who knows snow. If who knows does. snow, uh, she she noticed that in a lot of the scenes there was no snow on the roof of the hotel. Uh, <laughs> well, so she was wondering was that was that, that was that when there was the fake snow. Uh, yes. Or is that? Yeah, I mean, we couldn't shoot all of the scenes outside the hotel right. after that big blanket of snow. But yes, damn you, Crystal. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, a real question as a follow up to that, though, is uh, I, I, it's not something we've really ever talked about on the, the show, but um, assistant directors, uh, I feel like they, 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 I forget the exact term, but it's, basically it's like a cover set essentially 
is, uh, is, is if it starts raining, you have something that you can run inside and go shoot. Right. Uh, That's what a cover set is. It's an alternative if something goes haywire. Yeah. So I feel like, did you have the opposite for, oh, there's snow today. Let's, let's flip our our script and go shoot outside. Uh, Yeah. I mean, well, it, it, it wasn't really that because there wasn't a cover because it was taking an extra day to redo what we'd done. Got it. Okay. So what it meant was we had to compress something that would follow. Got uh, it. Rather than two or three days to shoot something, it would be one or two days to make up for what we had to redo uh, in the snow. I want to talk about two scenes in particular. Uh, One you've kind of already mentioned, Um, but you described the scene with Rebecca De Mornay trying to entice Stephen Weber to come to bed as one of the favorite scenes in this movie and and any movie that you've directed. Uh, Even when we were talking about my first movie, you referenced this scene. Uh, And and, uh, I'm just curious if you could walk us through prepping and shooting that scene, which which you know, is really just two people talking, as you said, for a whole act, but uh, that can be challenging in and of itself. Well, the main thing you need is a good script. Right. Here is a scene between a married couple who are really not at the peak of their relationship, that it's, it's on the verge of falling apart. She's pretty much ready to leave Jack before this story even happens. And the hope that they're together in this hotel, in this job that he has away from everything else is going to tighten the bonds of family rather than strain the bonds of family. They haven't been intimate in a while. You know, they're both a really attractive couple. They're good looking people. And here we emphasize that with the silk negligee and all that she's wearing. But the plan was really the two of them knowing what they were doing and really understanding it from inside out and then blocking it with them. I knew I had an idea of what I wanted because I knew it was gonna be in front of a fireplace. It was going to be in front of a, a giant window that the moonlight would come through. And it was going to be estranged and attempt to be intimate at the same time. So it needed to be blocked where they're far apart, where they come together, where they move apart. And it had to be kind of a ballet because she's seductive to try to remind him of what their relationship was and still could be. And he's haunted. It breaks through his personality, the reality of their relationship breaks through, but then it becomes clouded again because that hotel has its claws in him and it's insidiously gripping him and trying not to let him go. But that connection between husband and wife, a couple who were loving and have a child together and really want the best for their relationship is being strained and it's being strained from without. And that without is trying to make it from within. So there was kind of a game of chess, putting them together, pulling them apart, you know, putting them into the warmth of a romantic relationship and the coldness of separation and, and, haunting. So it was a a little bit of a ballet and it's, it's not noticeable. You don't want people to notice that you just want to feel 
And, but that's the importance of color and lenses and, and locations and, and the intimacies of these. You know, we spent a lot of time rehearsing it before shooting it and getting the blocking right to where it feels right. It would have been easy to just shoot that scene on the couch with the two of them, but it wouldn't have been right. And it might've been great that way, but playing that little game of chess, I think is something that, that helps make it so powerful. Yeah, no, I, I do too. It, it really is a, a terrific scene. And it was so great to revisit it, knowing kind of all that context that I've, I've had over the years of talking to you about it. Um, but arguably the scariest scene in the movie <laughs> features your wife. As <laughs> indeed. Uh, in some incredible makeup by Bill Corso uh, as the woman in 217. Yeah. Uh, so walk us through restaging this iconic moment. Uh, do you think that putting it in a child's eyes as opposed to Kubrick showing it through Jack's eyes made it scarier? Well, there are a number of reasons why. Uh, Kubrick was also shooting an anti-horror movie. He was right. working against the tropes of a horror movie because he didn't want to do just another horror movie. But there are a lot of tropes in the building of tension that are borderline cliche because they work. Um, but in this case, absolutely the difference being between the eyes of an eight-year-old and the eyes of a, a, an adult are much more potent, especially, you know, you've got this woman who's committed suicide and rotting in a bathtub, naked in a bathtub. Pretty scary shit for an eight-year-old, even absolutely. for a 70-year-old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I knew when I read the script that this was the centerpiece of horror in the whole four and a half hours. And so there was a lot of thought and planning and the building of tension. You know, it's very slow and you see shadows from the time that, that Danny goes into room 217. You know, it takes time for him to go in, the crossing of the room, cutting inside and seeing the pebble glass window on the door, these little starfish hands appear on the door and push it open and slow open and he comes through and everything takes time. And the exaggeration of all of those moments leading up to the reveal of this hideous face of my wife who has a very nice personality <laughs> <laughs> um, and is beautiful as you see when she is uh, uh, slicing. Earlier her. in the movie, yes. Yeah, you see yes. her red dress, yeah. Um, but Every one of those moments is important down to just the sound, looking at the rings of the shower curtain as they scree across the pole. Um, a hand coming around the shower curtain and slowly pulling it over. It's, it's building to something. And then when the eruption happens, when he sees the face in close up of the dead woman in 217, yeah. That doesn't stop there. It's relentless. Right. He runs. He can't open the door. He's. We show all of the moments of him running, the feet of yeah. the woman in 217 walking across the rug, leaving wet footprints in her wake. You know, all of those slow moments and having all the, the building blocks of building terror, the pieces of film that go into that. I knew that this had to be the scene 
that provided the the highlight of tension in it. It's yeah. the centerpiece in the movie of that. Well, and and it pays off with a huge jump scare when it gets pulled back in the room. Yes. And so. it's really obvious. It's staged in such a way it's a wide shot. Oh, uh, but it's uh, effective. I mean, Crystal yeah. jumps. Crystal jumped yeah. when we watched it the other night. So well, uh, and then and then the moment of the pull, you cut into a tighter shot. Right. So right. it is it's a real jolt and oh absolutely no, no, it's, music, it's brilliantly executed it really uh, really truly is thank uh, you but nicholas pike's music was so important to it bill corso's makeup yeah uh, Cortland and cynthia's performances are really really great so uh, so I, I can't remember if this came up on the the last episode or not but did you approach Cynthia or did she say, I'm playing this? No, 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 no. She would never do that. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I asked her to do it. Yeah. She's five foot 10, very slender and, uh, and really good and really loves the genre. Yeah. And she and King became good friends as well when we did the, the stand. Um, so yeah, it was definitely my idea. Absolutely. And if you haven't had a chance to go back and listen to Cynthia's experience in the last episode, uh, check it out. It's, it was, it's, it was great to hear her talking about uh, making that scene as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So you brought, you brought up Nicholas Pike. So I'm going to jump to him. Uh, his theme is incredible. Uh, yeah. Tell me about the first time you heard it. Well, I'd worked with Nick before he had done my first film critters Two which was, you know, a tiny movie, independent movie, but we had an orchestra, a full yeah. non-union orchestral score. So it's a great that. score. It it's really elevates score. the movie. And originally I was going to use him for the stand, but Stephen King had recommended Snuffy Waldron because he really wanted what you call blue jeans music. Right. Americana, kind of Copeland on a guitar. Right. It really worked out great. But this was something I wanted to start from scratch on with Nicholas. Once again, we had a 60 piece orchestra on the Sony lot, you know, the same orchestra that was in the Spielberg movies and, wow. and Nicholas conducting and just really great because there's nothing like an acoustic orchestra, the right. real thing. Samples have gotten incredibly sophisticated and all, but the theme, yeah, when I first, you know, you hear the themes on a piano before the they are arranged for an orchestra and it was effective on the piano and simple but when we were recording it uh, at the sony studio you'd see the orchestra members all looking at the screen and you could see they were loving this because you don't often get an opportunity to do a really sophisticated, classically influenced orchestral score for a horror film for a Stephen King movie. Yeah. This was a, uh, you know, actually, did we record it? Yeah, I think we recorded it at Sony. I uh, know Sleepwalkers was recorded at Sony, but I think this was recorded at Sony as well. Uh, and just, Nicholas really at the height of his powers. Absolutely. I, I agree. It's uh, it's so memorable. And, you know, each episode obviously opens with it and it just really, it sets the mood perfectly. Um, yeah. Really, really great stuff. My, pet, um, my hat is off to him. Well, so obviously editing is the last stage of the storytelling puzzle. And, you know, you said it earlier, you know, King made the choice to make this 
uh, three nights instead of four. Um, but there's a lot of our fans who are asking, you know, if you could have had a fourth, would you have wanted a fourth? And, and if you could have had it, what would you have done with it? Uh, there's no reason for it. The stand was yeah. a much more vast, complicated story to tell. It went all over the country. Um, there were a hundred characters and uh, all of that. The book was eight, 900 pages long. This is a 500 page book. This, it's about a small number of people, a small group of people together in an isolated location. I think it was just the right length of time to tell the story. Yeah, I, I do too. I mean, it really is it in two hours and we did it in four and a half. So yeah. no, but it's, it's a great, it's a great three act structure. It really is. I mean, like you said, when we were talking about, I still had the, the third night to catch up on with Crystal to revisit. And I mean, it really is like, it's, it's the perfect climax to the three nights, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, it was made to be shown over three nights and uh, you know, nowadays with binging, that's how everybody watches their shows. And that's why all TV series are uh, continuous. Right. It used to be TV series would stand alone. You could watch an episode. It didn't have to move on to the next episode, but since binging is, is the norm, that's no longer the case. But at the time of the miniseries, it was great because you could watch all three of them in one week. Well, speaking of uh, endings, um, the miniseries ends with the promise of the Overlook being rebuilt. Right. Um, we obviously know now in, in hindsight uh, that King did revisit this world with Dr. Sleep. Um, did, did you ever get any inkling other than like a fun little tag that, that he had more plans for this world? I, I just thought it was a great tag. I never thought there would be a sequel. King had never really written sequels to anything other than the Dark Tower series. Um, and it was so many years later that Dr. Sleep came to be that the primary character is Danny as an adult. Right. And so I never thought about anything beyond that ending being a spooky promise of a rebuild and a return. Right. right. So, uh, do you think the one one question that came up that I thought was interesting, but it's a, it's a bit of a what if, um, you know, now knowing where Doctor Sleep ultimately goes, is there is there anything that you feel looking back at the miniseries that was a, a setup for that, or or do you feel like you could have maybe with hindsight, is there anything you would have wanted to smooth into the the sequel, uh, or do you think? You know, it's 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 too hard to say because even King didn't know. Right, right. Even he didn't. But I, I always think of, of a project as an entity unto itself. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, we've spoken often about my opinions about franchises. Uh, nobody, sure. nobody used to set out to create a franchise. A sequel was formulated uh, from a successful first project. So I like to think of, of The Shining and virtually everything else I've ever done as self-contained unto itself. You know, Psycho 4, obviously, The Fly 2, obviously, Critters 2, they were things that came after the fact. Sure. But in the case of something like this, especially such an iconic book, such a fully realized book and screenplay from King that I never spent any time thinking about what comes after. 
Fair enough. All right. Last question, because this episode is starting to become as long as the miniseries. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nick wants to know, what was the greatest achievement for you and King in retelling The Shining? Well, I think the greatest achievement for me is that King loved it and was happy with it. Um, that we actually did recreate what he set out to create with the book in cinematic terms. And that critically, it was successful. The most successful thing I've ever made critically uh, across the board, you know, in hindsight, not so much. Everything changes over the course of time. Sure. But virtually every review of the miniseries when it came out was a rave. And that's rare to happen for any film or filmmaker. And the fact that we were able to break through with this very personal, very emotional story and have it so well received, that's the greatest achievement. And, and having realized the book on film, on the screen, is something that's incredibly gratifying. Yeah, no, I know that for fans of the book, true fans of the book, the miniseries is, um, you know, in a way, even more important than, than Kubrick's. And, uh, but I don't want to denigrate Kubrick because no, no, no. I'm, I'm not denigrating out to make, no, 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 I want to make sure, that clear. Sure. He set out to make his movie. Yeah. And he's an iconic he filmmaker. Yeah. Has had a point of view that was very specific and a cinematic style that was very much his own. Yeah. And he made a great Kubrick film. I don't think that it was, that matched to Stephen King's sensibilities. Yeah. But his film is a great film on its own terms. I agree. And we set out to make something entirely different. And I think you succeeded. And I think the fans of it, thank you for that. And I think the fans of it will thank you for this conversation, Nick. Uh, thank you very much, Joe, for uh, ringleading this discussion. And thanks <laughs> to everybody for their questions. It was really a lot of fun to revisit it two shows in a row. That's right. And uh, we will be doing the same with Sleepwalkers. So uh, get ready to send me your questions about Mick's 30th anniversary project with Stephen King coming up just just very soon so <laughs> coming soon to a podcast near you that's right mick thank you again uh if you if you want to send your questions again they're at mick garris pm on instagram and twitter and you can send them to me at joe russo tweets and at joe russo graham on twitter and instagram respectively thank you joe and thanks everybody and uh, if you are enjoying the show Please let everybody know by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.